And welcome. I'm Michael Krasny, and I welcome you to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, where each week we bring you a live discussion with a leading thinker, and we include your questions. In this episode, we're going to talk with Dr. Peter Kramer, and yes, he's another psychiatrist. Guests sometimes cluster around certain professions, and we do call ourselves Gray Matter, so perhaps it's not so quizzical that we have had recently a number of psychiatrists on, all very different in many ways and all certainly fascinating for me to talk to and for you to listen to, I hope. Having had a decade of experience as a psychiatrist in Providence, he, uh, our guest, Dr. Kramer, also came to international prominence back in 1993 with the best-selling book, Listening to Prozac. He's an expert in clinical depression. He's also the author of a number of other books, including Against Depression, Ordinarily Well, Moments of Engagement, Should You Leave, and a recently published satiric novel, which hope we will get to talk to, uh, which is also a Romana Clay, a thinly disguised centering novel around Donald Trump titled Death of the Great Man. A professor emeritus of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown, he was also the host of the public radio program The Infinite Mind, and we welcome Dr. Peter Kramer to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Good to see you again. Hi. Good to have you back. Thank you. And as I said, I, I do want to talk with you about Trump. He takes up too much oxygen, as many people say. But uh, he certainly, there's lots to talk about just uh, with the catalyst of your novel. Uh, I thought first, though, let's talk about antidepressants, since you really made your prominence, uh, made your name known and got on the map with listening to Prozac. And things have changed a lot, but I've been looking at some numbers, and one of these numbers just threw me for a complete loop. 68% of millennials are on antidepressants or have been prescribed antidepressants. That sounds way too high to many of us, but there it was in black and white. Uh, Utah has the highest state number of people on antidepressants. Seattle, the biggest city. Globally, Iceland is up there. And yet all of this use of antidepressants uh, sort of belies the fact that the debates still go on. And by the debates, I mean, are they just placebos? Uh, are they to be evaluated by clinical trials or by psychiatrist experience like yours? And then you have Robert Kennedy Jr. now, uh, a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president with about 20% saying that they're responsible for all our mass shootings. And all of the things uh -huh. that have gone awry with guns in this country. Uh, let's get kind of an anchoring in the present from you, Peter, if we could. Where are we now on antidepressants? Are they too widely used, and are they all that necessary? All right. So I have just revisited this issue, although maybe the detailed part of the discussion is, is for another day. There's a 30th anniversary for my sins edition of Listening to Prozac coming out, and I did a new... Uh, forward and afterward for it. So that'll be in the fall. And I said, certainly when I wrote in the 1990s, uh, it was sort of an innocent time that as I was warning and listening to Prozac that, that these medicines could be overused, but I had no sense really of what widespread use would look like. You know, we were uh, still campaigning. I'd been in the Carter administration to get people to recognize depression, get more people prescribed for. Uh, the standard at the time was that uh, people had to be fairly depressed before you prescribe for them. And when you did prescribe, the course of treatment was, you know, usually about nine months. Uh, we didn't anticipate people would be on antidepressants for 20 years. Uh, so it was really a different time. The 68% number uh, surprises me, but I, I do remember that about one in eight Americans were on an antidepressant before the pandemic. And then during the worst of the pandemic, that nudged up to about one in seven. So, you know, high numbers, whatever you think. And it still is the case that a large percentage of people with major depression have had no adequate course of treatment, meaning no, you know, psychotherapy or no few sessions of psychotherapy. Uh, not one uh, adequate dose trial of an antidepressant. So we're, we may be over-treating in some ways, probably under-treating. The, the book that is most relevant to this question of over and under-treatment among my books is Ordinarily Well, which is my last nonfiction book before this novel. And in it, 
I talk about some surveys where people went door to door, a national survey, a detailed survey in Baltimore, and it looked as if being prescribed an antidepressant was a good marker of severity. That is, it might not be that a careful expert doctor would prescribe an antidepressant for that patient or that person who was interviewed uh, when the door opened for the survey, but that the person who was on an antidepressant probably had some fairly uh, serious condition. So it didn't look like overprescribing when you looked in detail. On the other hand, you know, the numbers are shocking. I agree with you. Numbers are shocking. And what do you make of uh, Robert Kennedy saying that this is really behind mass shootings and all of the terrible things that have happened because perhaps there are too many guns, but in his judgment, it has a lot to do. And he's an anti-vaxxer and kind of a conspiracy theorist to begin with, but says that this is contributing, a major contribution to this. Well, you know, absent Robert Kennedy, I'm a great admirer of the Kennedy family. We, you know, have lots of- Excuse me, absent Robert Kennedy, the Kennedy family is an admirer of the Kennedy family. Right, are there not? Uh, You know, Patrick Kennedy wrote in his memoir that I had treated him, so I had a fairly up-close view of uh, some stages in that, uh, you know, family's development. Um, I I guess I feel a little like Adam Schiff, you know, uh, saying what an honor it is to be censured by the Senate. I think in a way, if Robert Kennedy says that something doesn't work, it probably does work. And if he says it does work, it probably doesn't work. I don't I don't think it's worth spending a lot of time on his reasoning. It seems very slender. Uh, so, yeah, I don't... I, I don't <laughs> well, most people are still taking, I guess, Zoloft, uh, but the reality is that um, there's a lot of uh, outcry that these are just placebos, that the people yeah. are not really being affected in any way, let alone mass shooting type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that really is a canard. That's just wrong. And that the the theme of ordinarily well is uh, the, its function is to pull together the evidence that antidepressants work, and they they clearly are not placebos. I mean, if you give them uh, to people about to go on a cancer treatment that fairly reliably causes depression in uh, patients, it prevents that they prevent that depression. I mean, there are cases that are not. Uh, drug company trials, but just ordinary instances of antidepressant use that demonstrate that they work. You know, they certainly work in postpartum depression. So uh, I I don't think that's a serious argument. I think it's a zombie argument. Uh, In the book, I go over some of the, you know, base. It's a lot like that, you know, article, withdrawn article uh, that uh, claimed that uh, people got autism from uh, childhood vaccines, uh, that there are articles in the literature that show antidepressants don't work. And those articles are just full of errors that were pointed out to the authors and uh, never corrected. So, yeah, I think that... you know, whether people should be on them for all the indications they're on them before, whether they should be on them as long, whether there are withdrawal effects. I mean, there are lots of things to talk about. Uh, and uh, But whether they work is really not in question. They work. And what about the idea of a diagnosis of depression? There's a lot of melancholy. There's a lot of um, terrible grief that people go through, trauma sure. and so forth. Uh are we pretty steadfast and safe with respect to clinical depression diagnostics? Uh, you know, I am a little more decided on this issue than some of my colleagues. I think we do pretty well with the current diagnosis. If you look downstream, people with major depression are likelier to have problems with uh, heart disease, problems with blood elements, problems with uh, bone formation, uh problems, you know, with uh, in the brain, uh, early onset dementia. Uh, Depression is just not a good thing to have. And I have a prior book called Against Depression that's about these kinds of problems. And in it, I say in a culture that had no category mental illness, depression still would be recognized as a multi-system disease. Uh, You know, it affects uh, the hormonal glands. It, It looks a lot like a disease given our current Uh, definition. Now, would we like to know better on the basis of biological markers or genetics or something? 
which people are likely to respond to which treatment? Could we do better with our range of treatments? Are we looking forward to uh, the validation of some of the things on the horizon? There are all kinds of drugs, some related to opiates, some related to uh, hormones that change during pregnancy, some, as you know, related to uh, uh, things like psilocybin and ketamine. Uh, would we like to have a bigger array of treatments? Sure, we would. I think if we were treating high blood pressure with only one class of medicines, we'd be very unhappy. And psychiatry would like to be more parallel to internal medicine in that regard. Lest I forget, uh, since we were talking about Robert Kennedy Jr., he also thinks that 5G Wi-Fi causes cancer. I only mention that because we have a lot of techies who listen to this. And I want to talk with you about your article on AI as a diagnostic tool. But I want to also talk with you about your novel, and before we get to the novel, we should mention, I should mention that uh, Dr. Kramer also has produced another novel called Spectacular Happiness, and he's one of these doctors, physicians who writes novels. Uh, I say one of them, there aren't that many. Ethan Kanan comes to mind. Uh, we have, of course, the example of Chekhov, the great dramatist yes. and uh, playwright and fiction writer who was a doctor, but the numbers are few. Uh, my friend Abraham Verghese, uh, who I hope to be doing a podcast with, has just published a book called The Covenant of Water. We'll give that a plug. And uh, he's also yeah. a physician and infectious disease. So expert. he's a spectacular writer, and we go way back. Uh, I was coming off a plane in uh, Cedar Rapids uh, to go to a writing program at the University of Iowa. And this was in the days when the computers were in these big, uh, you know, rectangular cubes. Uh, and if that's not, uh, uh, and uh, I saw someone else carrying one and I said, you know, we probably could share a cab. And it was Abraham. And we were in the same little class with uh, W.P. Kinsella, who wrote Shoeless Joe. That's the basis for the movie Field of Dreams. He and I were in a class of about eight or 10 people getting our you know, initial chops, doing our initial uh, learning about fiction writing together. Uh, and this is 30 plus years ago. Well, uh, you both have certainly distinguished yourself in, in ways that are very admirable and remarkable. And uh, one of the ways we distinguish ourselves as a podcast is we take questions from listeners. Some of them don't necessarily have to do with what we are talking about in the moment, but I like to go to the questions and let me do that before we get to your novel. Uh, here's Chris, regular listener of ours, he's in Tempe, Arizona, who says, when you made the transition from full-time professor to emeritus, did you encounter any unexpected accommodations to your familiar pace and style of work and life? Yeah, so the great thing about emeritus status is uh, you can say no, right? There are no requirements for how many courses you teach and so on. So. Uh, you know, that in a way uh, freed me up. And uh, I did that actually before I closed my clinical practice. But in 2018, I stopped seeing patients to write full time. And I did find that a more, I would say, a more difficult uh, transition than I had anticipated. Uh, and I had this funny thing happen, which is my friends started treating me as retired. Now, I wasn't retired. I'd written half time for, you know, 30 years uh, or more. And uh, now I was writing full time. Uh, but I actually right now I'm writing a book about that. I'm writing a book about what is retirement, uh, because I certainly was very busy. I mean, I, I, I don't know you're viewers that don't necessarily know about write, my writing life, but I've written hundreds of essays. So I always have lots of mis assignments. I'm, I'm writing all the time. And for people to call that retirement sort of astonished me. And yet uh, I had trouble resisting the label myself. I think in some ways I felt very different. So I, it's a good question. I think there is a life transition that takes place in your 70s that probably is, uh, you know, has some parallels to what goes on in your, your late teens and early 20s. I've been thinking a lot about that myself and would recommend the work of Ken Dykewald of Age Wave, who has written more about retirement. He's a gerontologist. Uh, in fact, Ken Dykewald comes to mind here. Recently, I saw him and we were talking about Trump. And he brought up a question that I have for you. We'll get to some more questions that are coming in from people who are listening to us. But he said, he said to me, does Trump have any friends? 
And I had to think about that for a moment. I thought, you know, you think about Roger Stone maybe, or uh, usually people who are transactional with him come to mind, Rudy Giuliani maybe. But I think Ken, who's a psychologist, was trying to make a point about Trump that you don't associate him or identify him with friendships. No. No, I mean, I know about Trump through having sat with this fictional character for four years. I've written this book that is uh, largely about a psychotherapy-centered psychiatrist who is forced into treating a narcissistic, egotistic autocrat who's in, in the novel in his uh, stolen and disastrous second term. So I really sat with a Trump-like figure in my mind and I was not tempted in the book to give him any friends. I don't think, uh, and you're right, the relationships all seem to be transactional. Was there kind of a, see, you're in the mind of the psychiatrist in this novel, Henry Farber, uh, and uh, unlike uh, the great man who is based on Trump, he has empathy. Trump seems to be, uh, your character of Trump seems to be uh, devoid of, or certainly empathy is absent. I wondered if you, maybe as a fiction writer, had some sort of wish you made Trump dead in the novel. You begin with him <laughs> being dead on the couch. Right. I mean, the book starts with him dead on this poor psychiatrist's couch, and the psychiatrist has to go on the run and explain what happened. But he is talking in that first scene to a security guard, and the security guard is telling him why he has to go on the run, that so many people uh, are prone to violence one way or another, and so many people hated uh, this the great man. If I say Trump when I mean the great man, I please correct me. And um, uh, Henry Farber says, yes, I had these patients who had dreams. They dreamed that aliens came and explained why the nation had elected this clearly inappropriate uh, person as a leader. And uh, they would wake up and not remember what the, these wise aliens had said. But inevitably, they wanted the aliens to take him away. And so, in a way, the, uh, uh, Henry Farber is trying to avoid talking about political assassination, but he's talking about this universal wish that the Trump figure would uh, disappear and the society would be freed of him. Of course, we're in more dystopian times in the novel. The great man really has ruined the society financially as well as morally, judicially, governmentally, and so on. Uh, so, you know, it really is true that most people want him gone. Uh, but yes, the, and part of the humor in the novel, as in many murder mysteries, is that interpersonally, this dead figure was so horrible that almost anyone who interacted uh, with him had reason to wish him harm. So that, you know, creates part of the murder mystery plot in the novel. Yeah, it's a murder mystery. It's also got those comic dimensions to it. I know you wanted to write a funny novel. You succeeded. Yeah. And you. Uh, there's there's a lot of grist for the mill for our discussion here. But I want to, it's a steric novel as well, obviously. We'll go to some more questions. Actually, this one is appropriate for Mary in San Jose who says, how has your work as a fiction writer inform your psychiatric practice and vice versa? Yeah, so... I do think that I'm a doctor writer for my sins. You know, when I stopped seeing patients and became a writer full time and turned to a novel, I, I really wanted that feeling of being a full time writer without the hyphenated uh, surround. But I think that my novels inevitably are informed by those many, many hours and many years with patients. So that in this novel, there's a lot about psychotherapy. And I think it's true that the influence goes in both directions. That ability to go off and imagine how people would fare in different situations is something that you bring to psychotherapy. And my third book, Should You Leave, I talk a lot about the nature of advice and the upside and downside of psychotherapists giving advice. But I kind of come to the conclusion that having a practical eye, knowing how things work in society, work in culture, for all its pitfalls is very important to a psychotherapist. You want to be able to hear a patient say what he or she intends to do. And as Harry Stack Sullivan said, you know, heaven forfend, what will come of that? You know, that sometimes patients need to be interrupted in their plans. But you shouldn't necessarily uh give specific advice. That's the good message that I got from your book. 
about leaving. Yes, that, that's true. I really, you know, the other thing that Harry Stack Sullivan says was there's nothing quite so destructive as a psychotherapist with strong opinions. And so James in San Diego says, what do you hope that readers will take away from your novels in terms of understanding their own mental health and the human condition? I was going to ask a similar question, about, but let's ask, uh, get you to respond to James first. Well, you know, I think that the latest book, but both of these books, the first book, Spectacular Happiness, is about a very sweet, lovable guy who, however, is blowing up trophy homes on Cape Cod. <clears throat> this one, you know, is about the tension between a patient who is entirely selfish and a doctor who is very selfless. And I would say that the reader probably comes away thinking that although the selfless is, is overdone in the therapist on a comical basis, that that probably is a better way to go through life, that absolute self-interest probably uh, doesn't work very well. Well, there's a kind of division in that book between autonomy and intimacy, which I found as a kind of yes. binary really fascinating. And still very much in many people's minds, a, a binary. Yeah, I think that might be the central theme of all my books. I mean, Should You Leave is certainly about how much autonomy and how much intimacy you want and demand in relationships and is the standard in America of you know, the sort of the independent person, really the one we want to aspire to. And that comes up very much in this novel about Trump and the therapist. The therapist, in a way, is using his captivity in the, where he's forced into the unique service of the great man to review the state of his marriage to his late wife. You know, what, how, how good was the marriage? He idealized it, but uh, how, how good was his own behavior? And I think that example of self-examination is also something that's conveyed to the reader, that there's some merit in uh, reassessment of our own, you know, the things we pat ourselves on the back for. Well, we'll come back to your novel and the question that I had in mind, but first back to listening to Prozac. Jane from Los Angeles wants to know the motivation behind writing Listening to Prozac. And she also asks, how do you view the book's impact? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, that really is the theme of this new introduction. And what happened in the late 80s when these drugs were introduced in early 90s was I was very much involved in patient care. And I had patients who came in and said, you know, I'm not just better from that episode of depression or I'm not only less obsessional, but I'm also uh, feel more comfortable socially. I'm more confident. I have less social anxiety they had a sense that of a personality change. And it happened that just before that job, uh, just before opening my practice, I'd been in the Carter administration in uh, research management. So I had awareness of the entire national research portfolio, everything out of NIMH and the veterans and so on. And I knew a lot of the leading researchers. And I was familiar by coincidence, because by interest, I was a psychotherapist and interested in social psychology. Uh, by chance, I knew a lot of the technical research on antidepressants and on the biology of personality and so on. And so I wrote this book about how it made sense that drugs that were designed to treat depression might also influence personality. That's what the, drug, what the book was really about. And it was an attempt to take this very small issue the few patients who had these remarkable responses and try to discuss modern views of the self and the biology of the self through that lens. That's what the book was about. What the book was taken to be, because people were so hungry at that time for news about the biology of depression, is it was grouped with things like Darkness Visible by William Styron as being a book about depression and the nature of depression. That book had just come out also. And uh, Susanna Kaysen's book, Girl Interrupted, came out. She and I traveled together some on book tours. And uh, so the book was taken to be about major depression, which it wasn't really about. Uh, and, but then I went back and wrote two more books about that topic because I thought I was kind of expected to. And as a doctor, that was a good, good topic for me. So why did you want to write this novel? What impelled you? The, you know, I had one of these epiphanies. I was in New York. I was giving grand rounds on 
uh, depression and antidepressants. I, when I go to New York, I try to meet with editors. I had a very narrow window to meet with my editor. The uh, offices of Farrar Strauss are, are near Union Square. I went to Union Square to be there a little early for the meeting. It was raining. Went into the Barnes and Noble, went up the escalator. Trump had just been elected. This was 2016. And I thought, this is like the Vietnam War. This is like the Vietnam era. Every creative person is going to be writing about what's happening to democracy. What is it like to have a narcissistic, uh, you know, self-centered person as our president? He hadn't done anything yet. I was just basing this on the campaign. And in the time it took me to get up the escalator, I decided I was going to write a novel. And I, this form of the kind of comic murder mystery with a great man dead on a couch came to me. And I know it did because I went into the children's section and got out my phone and started writing notes, went outside in the rain, called my literary agent, said, I'm about to see the editor. What if I propose this book? And he's one of these very, he, like me, really idealizes writer, writing and thinks it should be a zone of freedom. And he said, if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. So I went, went into the editor, proposed the novel, and the editor said, by no means, we don't want that novel. Uh, but I was intent on writing it. Yeah, you had some problems publishing this. Uh, I've read about them, and I was surprised, particularly with your reputation and your stature. But the reality is you've also had uh, some challenges getting the kind of attention to this novel. I mean, at one point, uh, I remember when you were being compared to Updike as a novelist, uh, and yet yeah. you know, people weren't as receptive to this. They just didn't seem to you know, catch on. I, I think it was like kryptonite. I think some of the large publishers have very long lead times before they publish, and they worry with political novels that something will happen. What if Trump died a poignant death, and I write this satirical novel about someone who has some uh, traits in common with Trump? You know, would they be stuck with this book and nothing to show for it? Uh, I think the fact that The Great Man is Dead at the beginning put some people off. They were worried that it would be mistaken for a book about uh, political assassination, which is a tough topic in this uh, country. Although, you know, in the Vietnam era, there was Mick Bird, right? There was a play on Broadway whose premise basically was that Lyndon Johnson had murdered John F. Kennedy, and Kennedy was actually dead, you know? So that was... I think, in a way, more extreme. It wasn't only McBird, actually. Oliver Stone kind of contributed to that uh, notion, too, to some degree. Yeah, there was. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, uh, I've gotten wonderful responses to, the, to, this, to this novel from writers. A.M. Holmes, the no a novelist whose work I greatly admire, just out of the blue, went on Twitter yesterday to say how much she liked the novel. Uh, but yeah, it was trouble of uh, finding a publisher and uh uh but it's out there now and, I'm and just here you are a great matter with there. michael krasny i mean you know yes, reaching such true. lofty heights i am also an admirer of am holmes by the way not only as a writer but uh, as someone who i've had the pleasure of talking with on the air for a couple of occasions um there's a, another question for you from Joseph in Charlotte, North Carolina, who says, I'll get to the question that I've been holding in abeyance, and your questions, of course, are welcome here. We're going all around different areas, which is what I like. Uh, Joseph wants it. It says, Eastern philosophy often talks about non-attachment, specifically as it relates to considering that we are not our thoughts and feelings. Do you think this is relevant to the discussion about mood management? Yeah, I don't have an answer to that. It's not not my area. I don't necessarily want to get into it. I am interested. Uh, you know, I go to talks about uh, meditation and Zen and so on. The objective evidence about meditation, for instance, and and uh, depression treatment is very mixed. It's not as good as uh, people imagine. Not as good as the evidence for antidepressants say, um, but. You know, I did re recommend to my patients to try everything. I mean, exercise, meditation, you know, something works for everyone. And I do think that the sort of stoical notion of detachment from our losses is particularly useful in some patients that if they're able to, uh, 
you know, the vase is on the shelf, it is already broken, you know, it's a sort of a koan, uh, you know, that the notion that attachments in the world are fragile is important. On the other hand, there certainly are patients who need more attachment. There's an interesting thing that I discuss in Against Depression. This is a little off topic, but I think you'll see the connection, which is that we, th we think a lot that attachments, friendships, and so on are sort of preventative of depression. But it turns out people with lots of attachments suffer a lot of losses. And it, it, it statistically, you know, there's sort of a cost of caring. So there are lots of paradoxical things about depression. They're not, not everything is just as we imagine it when we think about it uh, colloquially. Yeah, I, there, there's an old saw about uh, if you suffer from losses, uh, you know, and you feel that fragility that you're talking about, it just shows that you've loved deeply. And that, yes. you know, is the affirmation that one can derive from that. I have another question from Susan in Jacksonville, Florida. So it's, it's, a, it's a wide open question. Uh, and one, th thank you, Susan. Thank you for all these questions that are coming in. And Susan wants to know, as an author and psychiatrist, how do you feel about the media's portrayal of mental health issues? You know, how many hours do we can, have here? Huh? Right, right. I mean, the media can be very helpful. The media uh, can be very harmful. So that, and I think we're in a particular political movement. I mean, this book is from a, let's be clear, from a fairly liberal perspective, progressive perspective. I think the uh, Republicans attempt to put the effects of gun ownership on mental illness, you know, has really uh, been harmful. And I think it is, uh, you know, also plays through the media, Fox and elsewhere. On the other hand, I do think the media has gotten more sensitive to uh, playing up suicide. Uh, it's gotten more sensitive to uh, being dismissive of mental illness. Uh, I mean, I remember I wrote an essay about Zelda Fitzgerald for the Times when a particular book came out and the Times used the headline, how crazy was Zelda? And I think they would not, you know, without my awareness, uh, put that headline out, would not do that today. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, I, 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 yes, I, I don't know that I'm uh, particularly, I, I, let me put it this way. I'm on the media committees of a number of organizations. One of them is the Group for Advancement of Psychiatry. And uh, we are in a, having an enormous campaign to get the media to turn to us and our experts when uh, there are mass shootings, when there are uh, disputes over postpartum depression and so on. Well, the experts uh, had an alarm. Many of them, I suppose, could be characterized as liberal when Trump was elected president. And a bunch of Yale psychiatrists, I'm sure you're quite familiar with, uh, with Brandy Lee leading the pack, uh, but some very distinguished people like Robert Lifton decided that they would diagnose, and your novel gets into diagnosing Trump to some degree, they would diagnose Trump. They came up with a diagnosis that wasn't in any of the books called... Uh, Solipsistic, uh, malignant solipsism, excuse me. Malignant solipsism, I don't think is any of those books. Uh, but there's all these diagnoses of Trump, narcissist, uh, sociopath. Uh, the list probably is too long to even go through here. And there's the Goldwater rule, which says psychiatrists should only diagnose those they treat and they shouldn't do it in public. And now you've written an article, I alluded to it before, says maybe bots are going to do it for us. They're going to do the diagnosis yeah. based on speech patterns, which is all very plausible, right? We're in that context now, aren't we? Yeah, well, I think this comes from the Bandy Lee book, which, in which psychiatrists and psychologists, other experts, almost diagnose Trump, right? They're trying to avoid crossing a certain line, but they make it clear that they think he might be something, and that something is oddly quite different in the different essays, sociopathy, dementia, paranoia, I'm not sure I'm getting all the categories right. And, uh, you know, I sort of said, if they can do this based on the public record, couldn't bots do it better? You know, couldn't bots do as well? I mean, there's some humor in that, some seriousness, uh, that, and, and I, I think a, this also comes out of writing the book. I was sitting writing the book, thinking a lot about the Goldwater Rule, and I realized as I wrote 
that the specific diagnosis, the kind of thing that the Bandy Lee book tried to get at, doesn't seem very important to me as a therapist. It's not very important to Henry Farber in the novel. He is interested in being up close and empathic and really having a sense of what it is like to be the person across from him, to sit metaphorically aside that person, to see how that person sees the world. And so in the book, we learn much more about how the great man treats his wife, about how the great man feels injured in certain circumstances. We have a very granular sense of uh, the great man. And that, to me, reflects what I aim for in psychotherapy. I was never a great person for uh, diagnosis. And I think that these particular diagnoses, the personality disorder diagnosis, which is what we're getting to with borderline personality disorder, sociopathy, some of the other ones on that list, they are very fluid. They're not really stable. So someone will come in, meet criteria for one diagnosis. Uh, a year later, they'll meet criteria for another diagnosis. A year later, they won't have a personality disorder, but they'll be abusing drugs. So, you know, I don't find those all that helpful. But yes, I, I actually, I say this in this stat essay half seriously, but seriously, uh, it does seem to me that bots ought to be able to do as well. That my, my fantasy about the way in is that uh, investors want not to invest with the kind of CEO who's going to commit fraud. And that if they could get a bot to help them diagnose uh, which CEOs are risky to invest with, we would translate from that into politics pretty quickly. Well, that's not very far off in this brave new world of AI that we live in. I, I think, uh, like I said, speech patterns seem to be the path toward this, and it's a realistic path when you think about, uh, for example, it, was it in your article where you were talking about Elizabeth Holmes and maybe she could have been predicted just by her speech patterns as a Machiavellian uh, yeah, I'm not sure I said that, but there certainly are, you know, there's sort of a stray article here and there about diagnosing depression, diagnosing anxiety, diagnosing autism, whatever, through uh, speech patterns. And I think if in addition you have uh, people's political stances, you have the way they respond in uh, interviews, the way they respond in debates, there would be a lot of material. I think bots would do a fairly good job uh, predicting disasters which isn't to say that the public doesn't want to vote for disasters. I mean, perhaps they do. Well, here's a question from Reed, and uh, thank you for this, Reed. Uh, brings in another th thought to my mind, which I want to get to with, as well with you. Reed says, given that so many of our fellow citizens are rampant followers and supporters of the former president, what does that say about their particular psychological issues? Right. So, you know, that is one of the themes of Death of the Great Man, is why have we done this to ourselves? Uh, and I, I have to say, on a political basis, I don't have anything highly original to say. I do think that Trump's election and popularity have to do with a general sense of grievance. Uh, some of that has to do with the death of despair's cri crisis. Some of it maybe has to do with the long history of... Uh, racism, anti-immigrant feeling, the sense of, you know, white males being pushed around. And of course, you know, this is not where I'm expert. And I understand that there are polls that say that the core Trump voter isn't exactly in those categories. But I, I do think that it's true without some strong sense of grievance about and, and sense that the culture is moving too fast in certain directions, Trump would not have been president. There's also a lot of identification with Trump. I mean, he presents himself as a victim. He's basically a rich kid, uh, but he presents himself that way. And uh, people seem to, he's talking about retribution now, if he's reelected, people seem to identify with that. But also they right. like the entertainment part of it. There's a kind of right. unpredictable quality of performance in things that Trump does and says that lots of folks who maybe aren't all that involved in the citizenship responsibilities like. Yeah. No, uh, yes to all of the above. I think part of the problem of writing a Trump satire is it's hard to out-Trump Trump. Uh, you know, you want to create a character who is funny and outrageous, uh, but he's already doing a, a pretty good job of that. Um, you know, I think also the literature on uh, authoritarianism comes into play here, the notion that 
he will represent you. He will uh, push down certain tendencies in the uh, society all by himself. Uh, you know, there's sort of a messianic. I can fix it. Trump. I can fix it. Anything. Yes. I mean, that was his rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, here's James from San Diego. He says, "What role can literature play in destigmatizing mental health issues and fostering greater empathy toward those who struggle with them?" Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the great functions of literature is getting us to imagine ourselves in other people's shoes. So, you know, the uh, strange case of the dog, what was that story about a uh, autistic child who goes in search of his mother? Uh, you know, th uh, that seems to me was very helpful. I think the general function of literature, which is to put us in other people's perspectives, is a lot like the general uh, task of the psychotherapist. And, uh, you know, that I hope is, is what I bring to my novels. And of course, you know, in Death of the Great Man, the, uh, Henry Farber's great aim is to find the humanity in the great man. It doesn't matter how horrible the great man is to him, and without giving any, anything away, I mean, he, the great man actually throws his therapist in effectively in a prison cell. And in the prison cell, the poor guy thinks, how can I make this useful in the therapy? He's utterly dedicated. You know, what is it that he's missed? Uh, if he comports himself a certain way in, in his uh, imprisonment, will that get back to his patient and be useful in some way? He's utterly confident that the patient will want to be back in therapy with him, and he is working on it uh, at every moment, and he uh, treats the prison guards in the same way as if they might, might need help from him rather than the other way around. Well, there's this thing in literature called the Diné, the given, you know, like uh, Franz yes. Kafka makes a character turn into uh, a cockroach, and you begin with that given, and then the whole plot unfolds. In your novel, you begin with a, a kind of a Diné, a given that's almost implausible that Donald Trump would actually see a psychotherapist and look for help from a psychotherapist. But right. he even calls him a consultant. He won't even... Dane to yes. call him a, a psychotherapist, although he said that Maggie Haberman, the writer for the New York Times, he called her his psychiatrist. Yes, yes. So I set this up very carefully. The setup is that the great man has insomnia, has trouble sleeping, and of course he's outraged. How can someone who has done all the wonderful things he's done be plagued with sleep? Shouldn't that be, you know, bad or weak people who uh, have insomnia? And it happens that our Henry Farber when he was younger, in the way that I, when I was younger, had a book that was widely popular, has had written a very popular book about insomnia. Later in his career, he has uh, specialized in the treatment of paranoid men. So he is uh, brought in by someone who wants the great man treated for his personality problems on the pretext of treating the insomnia. That's the setup of the book, that we have exactly the one person, you know, it's like that one last job for the bank robber or whatever. Uh, Henry Farber's almost retired, but he's dragooned because of his special combination of being the brand name in insomnia, but actually having skills in the treatment of paranoia, he's brought in uh, to treat the, the great man. Why'd you make Henry a widower? Well, you know, I think I had to abstract him. He's in Providence, Rhode Island, from Providence, Rhode Island, and bring him into the great man's lair, uh, which is probably in the Adirondacks, uh, where he's hiding out from uh, whatever plots there are against him. And uh, I thought it would be harder if there were a wife to see what was going on or left behind. But also, you know, I think a lot of writers do this with death. I the the death made the ex-wife portable so that uh, he's grieving, Henry Farber's grieving. When he's in the great man's lair, he gets to live with his grief, think about uh, what he uh, would do differently. Uh, even after the fact, after the great man's dead, he's off in this bungalow in the woods writing about the great man. He interacts with another woman. He's still struggling with his marriage. So I think the death made her very portable, and I think widows are likable and so on. But it, it really does double duty. I mean, I, I hate to say there's a lot of this in 
writing and television and movies, there are a lot of sort of uh, widowers around. It's maybe more attractive than being divorced and so on. But it, but it fills some functions in the structure of the book and the narrative. And then some psychological functions because we have this very strong contrast between, between Henry Farber's uh, principled self-examination, his willingness to find himself at fault, and the great man's demand that he always be right and perfect. It would be too facile, perhaps, and easy, and against uh, the strictures that we usually have in literature to say that Peter Kramer probably identifies a great deal with Henry Farber. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of me in him. He is, I would say, a more moral person, maybe a more rigidly moral person, sort of Kantian. He's the kind of person where we're not sure if the murderer comes to the door and says, is the person I want to murder within? You know, Kant says we have to say yes, we can't tell a lie. Henry Farber is pretty close to that standard. I am, I'm a little looser than that. But um, I do admire Farber's commitment to the profession, and I think I, I have a lot of that. I love psychiatry. I love being a doctor. I actually went back to vaccinate people once I stopped seeing uh, patients in uh, psychotherapy during COVID. I volunteered uh, doing vaccinations. I've, you know, I think that love of medicine, love of psychiatry is very much part of what pulls us through the book. What do you say to those who now argue that psychoanalysis is uh, like a lost religion, it doesn't have the efficacy that it was believed to have had, uh, and that psychotherapy similarly doesn't really have the kind of success that has been attributed to it or that has been assumed that it would have, uh, that in fact uh, some people can find good catharsis and good counseling from you know a neighbor, a friend, an acquaintance, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, this is a, another issue that I discuss in many of my books. I think the evidence for psychotherapy is pretty good. It's about at the level of the evidence for antidepressants. If you like one, you're, you're going to like the other. Um, and uh, the evidence for the two of them together is, is probably a little better. Um, but whether psychoanalysis, you know, I think psychoanalysis has lots of virtues beyond whether it is a better treatment for uh, discrete mental illnesses than some other treatment. Uh, I was in psychoanalysis uh, as a patient. I got a great deal out of it in terms of uh, self-awareness, in terms of techniques I could bring to use with my patients. I wrote a brief biography of Freud. It's like a long magazine article called Freud, uh, Master of the Modern Mind, I think. And um, in it, I go through all the times and ways that uh, uh, Freud played fast and loose with the evidence. He was very inspiring to me. And then I do think that the research that's shown that Freud had major problems as a truth teller is uh, also, you know, has proved to be valid. There's a question from Jerry. Uh, and I should say before I read Jerry's question that we, I, I said we had a little cluster of psychiatrists as guests uh, just out of happenstance to some degree. One of them was David Spiegel, who has started an app to help people, right. with, particularly with problems like smoking or uh, self-hypnosis, largely as a way of doing that. And Jerry wants to know, how do you feel about the utilization of mobile apps and online platforms for mental health support? Yeah, I mean, I uh, admire of David. He's a, you know, was in the past a close colleague of mine. Uh, so uh, it's not, a, not something I know a great deal about. I'm skeptical about it. I, I have to say I uh, did not do psychotherapy in the Zoom era of COVID, but I had used a similar system, sort of a, a HIPAA-approved uh, 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 encrypted form of Skype with patients when they traveled. And I just got, I, I felt I wasn't as sharp as I was face-to-face -face in person. Uh, I think the apps are, are one step further away. I mean, I don't doubt that it's possible that the phone can alert your doctor that you've gone back to drinking. Uh, I do think it's possible to do a lot of screening with the apps. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I, I guess what I would say is probably the enthusiasm is ahead of the evidence, but maybe there will be evidence. 
I think there's evidence that your novel is a kind of meditation, a meditation on death, but also on truth and lying. Yes. And I'd like to sort of flesh that out with you a bit in terms of what you may be. The question I was going to ask you is what would you like the impact of your novel to be? What kind of uh, effect would you like it to have on a reading public, uh, which is something that I'm sure uh, is not an easy question to answer uh, for any novelist. But I think you probably have some notion of what you would like that impact to be, and it ties in with what I'm saying is the meditative quality about the book, at least Yes, I'm so glad to get to this issue. So really a central theme of the book is what do we make of fiction in an era when lies have become so destructive in the political arena? So, you know, authors take liberties in certain ways. This autofiction, which is a kind of memoir with fictional structure uh, built in and some permission to uh, introduce fiction into the narrative. Uh, and the book, th- that question of truth telling is built into the book because the rug is pulled out from under readers at different points, different characters turn out to have been lying, as is universally the case in murder mysteries. But I think it's a more serious uh, consideration in this book, so that at the core of the book is the question of have liars you know, ruined uh, the uh, fictional liberties that writers take, a creative liberty license for us. Um, and I, I would like readers to get to the end and, and ask that question, you know, what, what would it, what has the uh, proliferation of lies in the public arena done to us? Uh, and it is, uh, I think, really validated. You know, I had a conversation with James Fallows on a, on a podcast about this, where he said, well, this goes way back, you know, think about the John Birchers and the Goldwater era. And I said, yeah, but the Birchers finally weren't, weren't validated even by Goldwater. Trump really has validated lying in a way that I think is very dangerous. And I do think that is, you know, I think any book that aspires to be literary has to have many dimensions. But I think one of the dimensions of the book is it really wants us to think about whether we want to stand behind someone who uses lying as a prime political technique. Now, the Washington Post has kept count, and he is ahead of the pack, ahead of just about... But, you know, you hear the cynical response, all politicians lie. I'm sure you've heard that by those people who feel maybe Trump is not, all, and Trump was not a politician. Maybe that's part of his appeal. But, you yeah, know, that he no, may lie I, more. I, I but don't politicians think there have lie. been successful politicians in the United States who are comparable to Trump. I think his lying is entirely at another level, and he doesn't care whether he's caught out. He doubles down on lies. He expands them. So... I, I do think, I mean, I, and I think I anticipated that in 2016 when I say that I uh, thought that I had to uh, write a novel about this. And I, and I was surprised. I mean, if you think about the Vietnam War era where you had people like Philip Roth and Joseph Heller, uh, uh, Norman Mailer, writing fiction about the politics of the Vietnam War, I, it does, I do wonder why there haven't been more novels already about Trump and the Trump era. Uh, and, I, and I do wonder about the difficulty getting this published because I think it is, you know, just up to the moment relevant. Here's someone who's, uh, you know, been indicted a couple of times, convicted once recently, and he's still the leading uh, candidate for nomination in one of our major political parties. And the House of Representatives, uh, under the leadership of McCarthy and the Republicans, are now trying to wipe out those two yeah, yeah, good Impeachments. luck. Um, that's uh, <laughs> going to be wrangled out and fought over and so forth. Um, I guess, you know, I, I'm interested in, you mentioned James Fellows. We did a podcast with him. We also did one with Isabel Allende, uh, who is, you know, a very popular novelist. And talking about the sense that novelists don't quite have, I don't know if, it's, if stature is the right word, but it used to be that you talk to novelists about politics as well as just about everything else, you know, the geopolitics especially. Yeah. That role for the novelist is still true outside of the United States, but it seems to have been transformed here in the United States. Yeah, it? so Latin America really has this genre called the dictator novel, and one of the models for this novel, Death of the Great Man, 
is uh, Autumn of the Patriarch by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which starts with this generalissimo apparently dead, but still governing, uh, and runs you through that story of his death six times in the course of the novel. And, you know, those books are extremely influential, you know, and some of the politicians become uh, political, uh, elected to political office in Latin America, somewhat in Europe. Well, forgive I, me, I, Peter, it's not only the influence of those books, it's also the fact that those novelists were looked to for wisdom and for yes, you yes. Know, light when it comes to understanding politics. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm trying to write in that tradition and, uh, you know, one succeeds or, or fails. But I do also think that it's true that we put uh, intellect, intellectuals, and so on uh, a bit off to the side in this country in a way that, uh, you know, isn't, isn't universally true. It's maybe part of what Hillary Clinton called the deplorable's contempt for people who fall into that category, too, that divides this yeah. country. I feel like so bad about that one. You know, honestly, I think almost absent that one word, I, uh, uh, history would have been very different. I ask you uh, something that may seem a little off the wall, but you were the host of something called The Infinite Mind, which was uh, a very popular program for a while. Yeah. And... Kind of, there was a scandal that kind of blew up in that program. I've always right. been curious about that. So forgive me for veering away for a moment. Yeah. But well, I, I the scandal what happened with pharmacology and right. and Frederick Goodman? Yeah, well, I you know, I think Frederick Goodman was done ill in that discussion. He you know, had been head of NIMH. He did uh uh work for drug companies. This was before and after my time. He preceded me and followed me as host. Uh, and uh, he had disclosed some of his drug company relationships, but um, Slate and an independent organization went in and said he had not disclosed other uh, another of his relationships. And he had done some programs that were a little over obviously pro-drug and the, the program collapsed. But uh, I, I did wonder who was really at fault there. I'm not, I'm not sure that, that it was Fred. But in any case, uh, I was brought in precisely because I had no drug company ties. Uh, I had not taken money from drug companies. And uh, so I was brought in to sort of clean that up. But I think it was hard for the uh, uh, producers to produce that show without taking money, at least from drug company foundations. And so I left and Fred came back in. It was well, a wonderful you. show, however. Yeah, it was a wonderful show. And, um, you know, you've produced some wonderful books, which we are grateful for. Maybe a good way to conclude here is just by asking you if you can uh, speculate, because it's sort of implicit in your novel, what a second presidential term for Donald Trump would mean. I mean, he might be imprisoned as well, but uh, that remains, he may pardon himself also if he is reelected. I hope we don't get to see it. I think it would be disastrous. Uh, I, and I, you know, in the novel, I say that you can't destroy the judiciary. You can't destroy your company, your country's uh, reputation without paying a price. And the book is dystopian in, in, in a way that includes another kind of great depression. It's part of the dystopian equality is just uh, how far downhill a country goes when it gives way to uh, despotism over the long term. So uh, my prediction is very dire. You have any thoughts for those who say uh, that uh, they can't really abide Joe Biden as president or even speculate to what it would mean to have him in some kind of a semi-composmento state uh, mm -hmm. be president again with Kamala Harris as his successor potentially? If yeah, he well, he's only three years older than Trump. And uh, I just think he has not gotten the respect and admiration he deserves. In a divided Congress, he has done very well in terms of funding some important issues, uh, putting us on the right path for others. And I think people should... Uh, just look at the record, not listen to Fox, and they'll do fine. Well, if they listen to Fox, they'll probably hear the name Hunter Biden more than they'll hear the name Joe Biden. <laughs> do you have any thoughts about that? No. I, I, See, I'm I, trying to make you, you into what? the role not of the Not only do I not have thoughts about it, I think the public doesn't have a lot of thoughts about it. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's very sad to have a drug-addicted child, and uh, my heart goes out to everyone involved, and uh, 
uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that is going to be a major issue. I think it comes under the same category we discussed earlier, which is entertainment, cruel entertainment, let's say. See, I just gave you that role of the novelist as uh, a political analyst, and I uh, appreciate all your thoughts and appreciate your work as well. And I want to uh, thank you for the time you've spent with us today. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. And I want to thank all of you who joined us for this live episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Thanks to all who are going to be hearing it in the future. I want to remind you that we are a growing community looking to expand our membership. And to become a member, simply remember to go to graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. My thanks to our dedicated Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Kevin. And a special thanks to our special guest this morning, Dr. Peter D. Kramer. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.